0: Welcome to the Ready Yeti Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What is going on, Ready Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host, and on today's episode, I am sitting down with one of the co-founders of Wild Rye Mountain Apparel, Katie Hoversmoot. Katie, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thanks so much, Josh, for having me. Without a doubt. So for right off the bat, how would you best describe what Wild Rye Mountain apparel is?
1: Yeah, so we make design forward outdoor apparel for women, and we're really focused on disrupting the soft goods industry and outdoor. We think it's an overlooked category and something that's especially been overlooked for women. So we're interested in making technical, beautiful soft goods that women wanna wear every day, all day.
0: That's awesome. So how did you, what made you decide to get into this kind of a business?
1: Yeah, so I really didn't have a traditional business background. Before working in the cycling industry, I actually went to get a PhD in art history at UC Berkeley. And I always thought that I would be a professor. Uh, But then my work life and my kind of personal life started to pull apart. And I realized that if I was going to become a professor, I would have to leave California and take, if I was lucky, an assistant professor job in Iowa or Tennessee or Kansas and I really couldn't imagine leaving California. I couldn't imagine leaving the mountains. And on top of this, I was spending so much time skiing and cycling on my on my weekends that I thought, no big deal. I'll finish my PhD program and I'll go get a job in the outdoor industry. Um, so it had always been at the back of my mind that I wanted to start something on my own. But Coming right out of academia, I had no idea how business was run. I mean, I was mostly familiar with 200-year-old manuscripts and didn't know anything (laughs) about (laughs) supply chains, manufacturing, even kind of what the day-to-day workings of a business looked like. So I started interviewing for jobs in outdoor, and I think I interviewed for at least 30 jobs. I interviewed everywhere. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, and so I was interviewing at every major outdoor brand in the Bay. So like North Face, Mountain Hardware, Marmot, Athleta, Camelback, you name it. I interviewed everywhere for any job that was like remotely applicable to my background, which was pretty much writing and critical thinking um, and cubism, a lot of cubism. So I finally got a job at Specialized Bikes and they took a chance on me and I got a job there working as the assistant to the CEO and founder, Mike Sinyard. So I went from kind of being in an academic PhD program to getting coffee, making reservations, taking the Tesla in to get worked on. But it was really uh, the best place to cut your teeth in the outdoor industry. And working as the assistant to a founder is really a great job if you don't know anything about business. So I learned a ton and had always known that I wanted to go start my own thing. And for me, I always thought that would be ski base layers. Um, But the more and more I got into mountain biking, the more and more frustrated I was with the offerings in mountain biking too. So I ended up leaving specialized after having worked there for about four or five years and my girlfriend Cassie Abel was leaving Smith Optics at the same time and so we looked at each other and we were like I think it's time we should go do this thing so we launched Wild Rye about a year later uh, in August of 2016.
0: That's really awesome so when you came up with this idea what, what was your process in getting rolling?
1: Yeah, there was really no process. It was like, (laughs) I have no idea how to start a business. I'm going to just start looking at pieces. So um, obviously, for any other founders who've been been through the system, you kind of realize looking back exactly what you would do if you went to start another company. But in the beginning, it was everything from asking people who Could supply our fabric, to finding a branding person, to building a website, to understanding how our sales funnels would work. And all of that was really new to me. I mean, I'd worked for a specialized for a while, but I mean, my background was not in business. And so it was a steep learning curve. So you just kind of, you have to start chipping away at it piece by piece. And I think you you don't know what you don't know until you're on the other end of it. And so there are a lot of things we would have done differently. But at the time, you know, we did the best we could.
0: Yeah, it's always a learning experience. That's for sure. So
1: it's such a steep learning curve.
0: I know. It's incredible. You think you know so much and then you get into it and you're like, well, okay, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) maybe I don't. (laughs) Um, So okay, so wild rides broken up into really two categories, right? You make um, soft goods in the mountain biking industry, specifically for women, and same thing in the snow sports um, industry, right? Yes. Okay. And so obviously, I guess the reason you did that is so that in the summer times, you had something else and vice versa with the winter. So you were a a full um, four seasons business, correct?
1: Yeah, and for us, from my perspective, I think that categories like run and hike and just general athletic outdoor pursuits are really well served by the existing brands that are out there. I mean, Solomon does a great job in running, Lululemon does a great job in kind of all general outdoor or even just general active goods, and for us... Really, mountain biking and skiing are two really specific, hard endeavors. And when you're mountain biking, you need a really specific set of apparel to do that, and you need it to perform for you in really specific ways. The same thing is true with skiing base layers. I mean, you merino is really the fabric you want to be using. You really need kind of technical cuts, and you need people who are familiar with the needs of those sports. So we really chose ski and bike because they were really overlooked for women, um, and also because for us, we were interested in creating an outdoor company that would offer year-round apparel options for women. And so it's really built on the kind of model that you see for a lot of German companies and a lot of Euro companies that they offer uh, biking stuff in the summer and ski stuff in the winter. Because if you live in the mountains, those are your two main activities. And both Cassie and I, I'm in Tahoe, she's in Sun Valley. So we're definitely mountain town residents. And we know that these are the kind of two key categories categories that people who live in the mountains need.
0: Oh yeah, totally. I, I totally got that. As a skier myself, I know exactly what you mean. Um, so I, I've got two questions based off of that. One is, you, so you guys don't work um, together in the sense of that you're both remote, correct? What is yep. that dynamic like?
1: Yeah, so I actually had been remote at Specialized for my last two and a half years there. So I was really comfortable working remotely with a co-founder, and in fact, we work remotely with a designer as well. When you live in a small town, I live in Alpine Meadows next to Tahoe City in North Lake Tahoe, and Cassie lives in Sun Valley. You realize that if you're going to have the kind of talent you need to start a company that's going to be dynamic, you might have to look outside the bounds of your small town. And so for us us. Working remotely with key partners is really the best way to build the business. It does have its challenges, of course, but these days we're also connected with our phones. We're always available. There's Skype. And we make an effort to kind of get together on a quarterly basis to touch touch base and kind of make sure that we know what the next four months or three months are going to look like, what our 12-month plan is. And so we're good about planning when we're in person. And then we're really strong on executing when we're remote out and I really think, too, that as we look more and more at people moving to mountain towns and just wanting to live in places that allow them to do the things they're passionate about, we're going to end up with more remote employees. And so I think it really behooves you as a person who runs a business or runs a company to learn how to manage remote workers and to find a way to really make that situation work for you. So, yeah, we're 100 percent remote and our design, we work with a designer to a contract designer and she's in Portland. She's remote as well.
0: That's awesome. I totally yeah. support that. I'm the same way. With my, So I live with one of my partners and the other one is based in Atlanta. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I, the working remote thing, It's while it was weird to get used to and comfortable with, yep. at the same time, it's like sort of second nature now that we've been doing it for a year and a half plus. Um, and you're right. It's It gives you the ability to pursue and do the things that you love and you don't have to feel like you're... Um, holding someone back from doing the things that they want to be doing because they can live wherever the heck they want.
1: (laughs) I also really believe that it's the future. I think that if you want to get the best people, you're going to have to be willing to work with them where they want to be. And maybe that's the Bay Area, but maybe it's Telluride, maybe it's Crested Butte, maybe it's Bend, Oregon. And I think if you're going to get the talent you want to create a strong company, you're going to have to learn to manage remote workers.
0: You're completely right. I couldn't agree more. Um, okay, so I want to ask you specifically about uh, your, your product. What is it that you would say really differentiates you from other uh, soft good companies?
1: Yeah, I think for us, it's a couple of things. One is fit and an attention to women's bodies. Uh, We fit specifically on women who are athletes in the sports that we make apparel for. So we don't fit on women who haven't been on a bike or who don't spend a lot of time on a bike or who don't go uphill on skis because at the end of the day, Anyone who skis a lot knows you come out of ski season with huge thighs, and that if you're on a bike a lot, (laughs) you've got some junk in your trunk, and that is something that should be embraced. And... I was really tired personally of wearing like a size 6 dress size and then ordering extra large mountain bike shorts so that they could like fit my thighs and I could actually pedal in them. So we're really committed to fits that work with athletic women's bodies and we're also really committed to finding fits that work with the most bodies possible. So that's one of our main goals. Our second goal is in terms of technology and just general aesthetics. So we work with primarily nylon fabric. Uh, a lot of other mountain bike apparel companies out there work with polyester I know this seems really techie to get into the kind of micro details, but nylon's much stronger. So when you're whipping down the single track and you're coming around a corner, you're going to end up snagging your shorts. And instead of ripping, they are going to stay just beautifully attached to you. So that kind of technology is really important to us. And we carry it over in the winter as well by working with 17.5 micron merino, which is one of the finer kind of threads of merino that you can get on the market you can get up to like 14.5 but that's for you know ultra luxury brands like Fendi and Hermes Um, but we work with 17.5 micron merino again blended with nylon for strength and we just really want to create something that's technically going to perform for you but also looks great. So in terms of aesthetics we really focus on something that looks feminine. You won't find us making kind of black baggy shorts for mountain biking. You won't find us making kind of like sausage casing, base layers that just hug you in all the wrong places and purple and pinks and blacks. Uh, We're really interested in finding an aesthetic that resonates with a contemporary consumer as opposed to a lot of outdoor brands have a color palette that looks like it's straight out of 1996. So I think those are the things that really set us apart. And I also think for us, it's really about listening to our consumer. I mean, we started the company to serve our needs. I know that sounds like a crazy idea. Why would you start a whole company just to make a product that you want? But at the end of the day, nobody was making what we wanted. And so we started Wild Rye to fill that need and we know there are other consumers out there who are like us and we know that we've kind of hit a niche. So it's been really rewarding in that sense.
0: Definitely. So from that first idea, when you came up with Wild Rye, what was the prototyping process like? How did you go from that first uh, pair of whatever you made, whether it was uh, a base layer in skiing or something related to to mountain biking? How did you get from that to where you are now and making a really quality product?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer that your product can always be better. Uh, So I think we have made a great product. And every day, all I'm consumed with is how we can improve it. So we test a ton. Obviously, we test iterations in house, we test them on our bikes, we test them out skiing, we usually run that test process for about a year before we go to production, so we can get the kind of details dialed in. But I also really love it. People email us a lot and say, I love your product, you know, it's helped me be more confident on my bike, or I've really enjoyed your midweights, and they've made me feel more comfortable on the skin track. And I love those kind of Positive words from people, but what I really love are emails uh, Where we get actionable feedback someone who emails us and says, you know, I liked this, but I didn't like this and this and here's why so we always look, too, to the kind of community that we've built around Wild Rye for feedback. If someone comes to us and says, this was terrible, my first impulse is, you're right, let's fix it. So for us, every year is an iteration, and we get to be better each year. And so my goal is, you know, you always have to start somewhere. And someone once told me when I was starting that you you always throw out your first pancake, Um And it's kind of true, and it's true in apparel manufacturing, too. So we definitely made some mistakes that first year that we've since corrected. And, you know, I think we'll continue to improve, hopefully, year over year. Um, But, yeah, we use a fairly rigorous testing process for all of our goods because, at the end of the day, when you're out on a bike or you're out on your skis, you're in an environment where the last thing you want to be thinking about is your apparel. I mean, really, you just don't want to be worrying about it. And that's our goal, to kind of take that worry off your mind.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. The The, the consumer feedback is so, so important. Um, when you were talking about I was just thinking about for us with Ready Yeti and um, the way we operate in getting that customer feedback, like you said, like, I like whenever someone emails us, they're always like very like, well, so I don't want to like, bother you or whatever. And then they give us very honest, valuable things. And you're like, no, bother like, no. me, they're bother like, please, me. <laughs> please give me more of that. Like, that's really helpful to us. Like, yeah. I, I can't guess you telling me what's wrong with whatever is super, super valuable. And it's the only way we're ever going to improve. Um, yeah. I think that's so, so important. Um, okay, so you, you mentioned a little bit. Uh, about some mentors you've had in past jobs and uh, what's gotten you to where you are today. But I wanted to ask you to go a little little deeper into who specifically really helped you build um, Wild Ryan to what it is today.
1: Yeah, so I've had some really, I've been lucky, I've had some really wonderful mentors. Uh, and I think actually my mentors started as far back as my days as an academic in my PhD program, because when I was a grad student, I had advisors who taught me how to take criticism, how to iterate, how to move quickly, uh, long before those things were part of the startup gospel. Uh, they were kind of drilled into me. And I think that problem solving I learned early on as a grad student, um, But I was really lucky to start my career in cycling in the outdoor industry, working as the assistant to the founder of Specialized Bikes. And working for Mike Sinyard is like a master class in running a business. And he always put a great deal of faith in me, offered me opportunities to grow. And he's really been an amazing mentor over the years while I was at Specialized. Uh, Additionally, so was my other colleague at specialized tom larder who now works as the global director of sales at santa cruz bikes and both of them really helped me learn what business was about i mean i was coming straight out of a phd program with no i mean Josh, no joke, I spent my entire first week at Specialized watching YouTube videos on how to use Outlook because I had never scheduled a meeting before. That was like my whole job at Specialized was to schedule meetings, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I literally just sat there with headphones on trying to figure out how to use Outlook. That was my whole first week. Um,
0: That's awesome. <laughs> so
1: Tom, yeah, Tom and Mike really taught me everything I know about the business, and I couldn't be more grateful to them. But in Tahoe, to be honest, we have an amazing community of startup founders here too, especially in outdoor. So when I got going with Wild Rye, I really relied heavily on some just practical advice from people like uh, Jan Garecki, who's the founder of Coalition Snow, Dan Abrams, who founded Fly Low, uh, Tristan Queen, who co-founded Arcade Belts. A lot of these guys just had coffee with me and offered me advice kind of in key moments. So I've had a lot of people help show me the way. I I think the biggest advice I have for people too is just always ask. I'm one of those people who if I really need something, I'll always ask for it. Um, If I need help, you know, and always give them an out. I'm like, if you don't want to tell me what your margins are, that's fine. But I don't know what I should be looking for. Um, And inevitably people have been incredibly generous with their time and their information and their advice.
0: You know, I think it's interesting, especially in the entrepreneurial world, and I didn't realize this until I I myself got into it and started building Ready Yeti, successful founders, love to pay it forward because they know exactly what you're going through yeah they know that pain and the misery of trying to build a business and constantly getting rejected and they're just like stoked to be able to be like here don't do that do this
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we're just so lucky in Tahoe too I mean Honestly, I think we've got a full-time population in North, like at least in Tahoe City, of about 10,000 people. And out of those people, there are so many who have the experience in entrepreneurship and in outdoor that you can just knock on doors, really, or just send emails or text messages. And usually you can find the answer you're looking for in your own local community really quickly.
0: Yeah, that's so important. It really is very important to have people supporting you uh, in whatever it is that you're doing. Um I wanted to ask you. So, obviously, one of the big aspects of your business is, is you you manufacture your products. So, in context of that, and really uh, creating that process, how what is your commitment to sustainability and making sure that the products that you create are um, created with the least amount of impact?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good question, and I think sustainability is obviously having a moment in outdoor. But I personally don't believe advocacy should be an advertising platform. And this is something I think I've really struggled with personally. Um, So I think instead it's really just about doing the right thing. So we manufacture every piece we can domestically in the United States. We work with a manufacturer in San Francisco and we put every piece we can through them. If we have to manufacture overseas, we work with partners who have the most stringent worker safety and pay standards, and we only work with Blue Science certified fabrics. Uh, We also only work with Merino suppliers who have non-muciled Merino sheep, so that's the most humane way to shear sheep. Uh, And we also are working really hard to find ways to upcycle our waste that emerge in the apparel manufacturing process. So, Right now, we're actually working on prototyping dog beds with both uh, obsolete inventory and scraps. So we're trying to find ways that we can use the leftovers to also create something people might want. Uh, and that's a huge part of what we're doing. But at the end of the day, I have to be honest, we're not a B Corp. Um, we are you know, a for-profit company. We don't do profit sharing right now. I hope that someday we're in a position to do something like that. But for the moment, we keep our sustainability in our sites really by focusing on our manufacturing process and especially on the waste process generated in the apparel manufacturing. So we do everything we can to both minimize that and upcycle whatever we have left over in terms of waste
0: yeah it's it's definitely a very complicated thing especially yeah. when you're just you're talking about manufacturing in general and then you add in this whole other huge aspect to it it's very complicated to figure out and then well, some information that you have you might not be as environmentally friendly as you thought it would be and yes it's just a very it's there's a lot of learning involved. <laughs>
1: I also just think sustainability has so many different elements. When you talk about whether or not a company is sustainable, the question is, are they sustainable in the way they even think about the apparel production process? Is creating a new line every season sustainable? Is having a set kind of standard of evergreen products the most sustainable option? Is giving back to other nonprofits your path to sustainability? Or is it the way you treat the actual waste in your process of manufacturing? And I think what we're seeing is that all of these different facets work in different ways for companies. And I mean, from my personal perspective, I'd like to see companies move towards more evergreen products and away from the constant cycle of seasonality, because I think that's a huge producer of waste and is really detrimental to a lot of sustainable practices and outdoor. So I don't know, it's interesting to see how much it's grown. In particular, I was at Outdoor Retailer last week at the March for Public Lands, and I was really moved by it. But at the same time, I I do some sometimes worry, um, as someone who's been involved in a lot of the development controversies in the Tahoe Basin and has been personally really active in fighting them, I wonder, though, how often advocacy is just used as a, an alternative advertising platform. And I do, that makes me a little nervous, I have to be honest.
0: That's actually a very good point. So just to make sure I fully understand what you're saying, you're basically saying that people, brands are taking advantage of their so like their greenness as an extra marketing ploy to get people to buy from them, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is the marketing. I think it is the marketing tool today, especially in outdoor. And that's not to say that we shouldn't encourage them to create sustainable practices and that brands shouldn't market those because they absolutely should. I'm just wary of you know, building sustainability into the DNA of a business so that it's fully ingrained and it's not this, um, you might have to edit some of this out. So it's not just about um, kind of having sustainability for sustainability's sake but it's about building an environmental awareness into the dna of the brand and into the fabric of what you're doing every day as opposed to you know giving 1% back to the planet and having that be your advertising platform or having that be a marketing tool for you obviously i think we'd all like to be in a position where we could do one for one where you know if we sell one pair of mountain bike shorts, we can get one girl on a bike somewhere and get her learning how to bike. But I think for a lot of us, that platform or that kind of business model doesn't quite work yet. Um, but yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it's really interesting. It's something that I struggle with personally a lot when it comes to kind of my own values and the business's values and how much we want to market those values versus how much we want them just ingrained in the DNA of what we do every day.
0: Those are a lot of great points. There's there's two so there's two people that really jump into my mind or I guess one business and one person. <laughs> um, are you familiar with Jason Leventhal? Uh, yeah, of LionSkies. Yeah, so yeah. I, I interviewed him on the podcast like early on. Um, and I asked him the sustainability question and I don't know if you've ever met him or or spoken with him but he's one of the most like he'll tell you how it is. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. he doesn't sugarcoat anything. And so I asked him that question and he was just like there is nothing sustainable about building skis.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's right. Yeah, and I'm like, you're right. There's nothing sustainable about apparel manufacturing. Like,
0: nothing. Like, he was just like, I literally, like, press skis made with epoxy that I know is damaging to the environment, right? And, like, (laughs) I am trying to sell 2,000 pair a season. And he's just like, I know that that is not sustainable. But at the same time, I also know that, my goal is to get more people outside and more people partaking in activities yeah. that get them in the mountains, so that they're conscious yep. of the fact that, like, hey, this Earth is kind of important and cool to be able to like do these things. So maybe we should give a crap about, you know, what. Well, we're, what or, doing.
1: or to be honest, I love the Patagonia model, which is
0: right. That was the second thing. Get
1: get big, right? Like weight sit on it and then get huge and then when you're huge throw your weight around and I I really appreciate the fact that they've brought sustainability in their manufacturing to the forefront recently in the past let's say five to ten years because for a long time Patagonia didn't even talk about it it wasn't they didn't do the cleanest line it wasn't part of the DNA of the company and I love that they've gotten big and now they're like We're big, we can really make a difference and we're going to do it. And I think, you know, it's really hard when you talk to small businesses who are trying to build a business and you're like, well, how are you sustainable? And you're like, well, I'm sustainable in that we make tiny, tiny manufacturing runs. And we really, you know, we're too small to really have much impact on the environment. But when you get to Patagonia size, that's when it really matters. And so it's great to see really big brands be like, no, we'll show you exactly what we can do with our weight now.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, so along this journey, um, I wanted to ask what sort of the, the um, day-to-day is like for you with uh, Wild Ride. Now, I know you and your co-founder still have uh, full-time jobs, and you're hoping in the next year or two you'll be able to transition to Wild uh, Ride full-time. But uh, I wanted to ask you sort of what your, your daily uh, schedule looks like.
1: Yeah, it's a great question because I think it's different for everybody and sometimes it's nice to hear what other people do and you're like, I'm not crazy. Um, So for me, I've always been a really early morning person. So my day usually starts around five, five thirty in the morning. Um and I get up and work until around nine or ten and then I'll usually go for a ride. Uh, I'll go for a bike ride, I'll go for a run, I'll go for a hike. Um if it's ski season, I'll go skiing. And then I'll usually come back to work around noon um, and work from then until whenever the work's done. So I think anyone who runs a startup can tell you that there's a ton of fluidity between your work and your life, and there is no demarcation between the two. So I'm working at nine o'clock at night when I'm sitting down to watch a movie, I'll Check my email on my phone. If something needs to be taken care of, I'll take care of it then. On the weekends, I often uh, work on wild rye stuff and I work on my my other full-time job as I teach art history. So I also work on a lot of teaching on the weekends. And I really just find the most important thing is when you have this kind of fluidity between your work and your life is that you make sure to make time for your life. So if that means that you're running errands in the middle of the day or you're taking time to ride your bike or go skiing, that you actually do that as opposed to putting it off until kind of after hours, right? Like after 5 p.m., before 9 a.m. I find I work so much really early and I work so much late that I, I never think twice about going for a bike ride in the middle of the day. Um, so you'll always find me kind of piecing together blocks of time to get stuff done and then piecing together enough time to get out there and get after it.
0: I couldn't agree more with that. I, uh, I do something very similar. Like my, I usually ski in the morning and then work for like four or five hours then maybe do something else. And then at night yeah. you'll see me working. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes it changes. Sometimes it's the reverse depending upon what's going on.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have to be honest. You will never, I am a very, I ski at Squaw in Tahoe and you will never find me in the office before noon on a powder day. I will be You're in right. the KT line. <laughs> I am waiting to ski pow. There's no, like you could not force me if someone, I mean, I would literally take a call with a VC in that KT line. There's no way I would not, not ski.
0: <laughs> I'm right there with you. Like, yeah. Uh, like I um, so on the east so I, I live on the east coast, so powder days are a little less um, frequent. So we have yeah, well we especially hold,
1: after this past year.
0: <laughs> well this past year was a great one actually for the Northeast. Uh, like J Peak got four hundred and like fifty inches of snow. Oh which my
1: is, gosh. Which was
0: awesome. And so like that's we, like
1: squaw, that's like Tahoe snow levels. <laughs> I know.
0: It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so uh, there was Winter Storm Stella that came through, and it dropped, like, 52 inches of snow in, like, two days. Yeah. And I just remember, like, I disappeared for three days, basically. (laughs) And, like, everyone's just like, where where the hell are you? I'm like, listen, like, priorities.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think... um I noticed recently that Flylo had been hashtagging their Instagram images, hashtag own your time. And the truth is, I think that's exactly, you live in a mountain town. I live in a mountain town personally because I want to ski and I want to bike and I want to be outside. And I'm also really committed to running a business, but I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I can go ski from nine to noon, sometimes even 2 p.m. And I can still get everything done I need to get done for that day. It just takes a little bit of extra elbow grease and it takes, you know, understanding on the part of your colleagues that you're going to be on the mountain. And, you know, you can only email so much as the snowstorm will allow.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think another really good point is when you when you build your own business and you're working for, for a cause, not necessarily for hours, is you become a lot more efficient. You know, when you have yeah. a day job and you're working nine to five Typically, and this has changed a lot recently, but in the past it's been, okay, you're here from nine to five regardless of how much work you have to do. Um, and in reality, like I think there's a statistic where like people really only get about two and a half hours worth of work done in, a, in, a nine, in an eight hour day. So like clearly there's time there for if you're productive and you focus on things that actually move the needle forward, there's a lot more time in the day for you to do those fun activities. And the fact that I can spend four hours skiing in the morning and then work after that is so motivating. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's so true. Okay, so what would you say have been some of the hardest parts about starting Wild Rye?
1: Oh man, if you had asked me this question a year ago, I would have literally said everything about starting Wild Rye is hard. Uh, But after that first initial struggle, I think the problems and the questions and the roadblocks that we hit in the that first year, now they just feel run of the mill. Um and when Wild Rye launched, it seemed like when things went wrong, everything, it was like the end of the world, right? That if one thing happened, if our manufacturing timeline got pushed back, if our fabric supplier told us that they had shipped the wrong color, if our trims weren't ready, it just seemed like everything was going to end. And I think one of the hard things about starting a business is when you begin, you don't realize how much of this is going to happen and how little is in your control. And for me, who, someone who's very type A, this was really hard to get used to. But now that we're a year in, I'm used to the kind of problems arising. And so now I just, you know, I, I tackle them as they come. And I have a way... I have so much less stress about it than I did that first year. Um, because inevitably things are going to go wrong, and you're going to have to figure them out. Um, and so I think all of those periods of not knowing all the periods of struggling to come up with a good solution to problems, those were all the hardest things when I started wild Rye. and now those are the things that, you know, I take in stride. So, Like I said, it's a huge learning curve. I think anyone who started a business will tell you that. And so now that we're a year in, I I feel so much more comfortable with those hard things. That's not to say that new hard things might not appear, (laughs) that I will struggle with in the future.
0: (laughs) Of course, of course. So what has the growth been like since you, you started?
1: Yeah, so our growth has been pretty fantastic, actually. Um... Our monthly growth is usually around, we grow anywhere from 20 to, in some cases, 50% month over month. Um, We've also started to open wholesale accounts, so we've seen growth into the wholesale market as well. When we started Wild Rye, we really wanted to go direct to consumer only, but I have to tell you, we had, uh, Cassie and I both had kind of like a come to Jesus moment at an event this summer when we watched women come up and kind of like stretch and touch and stroke our products and i realized man women are so comfortable buying online but only after they've had a chance to experience the product in person so we have started opening up wholesale accounts and that's uh contributed to a lot of our growth over the summer and we're opening up more into the fall and winter as well uh so we've seem pretty fantastic growth numbers and now it's just a matter of kind of keeping those ratcheted up as we move into fall and into next spring as well
0: of course so i want to ask where did the where did you guys come up with the name
1: oh man our name is such it's It's one of those stories of like the hard things. So we actually launched Wild Rye under the name Buttermilk Mountain Apparel. And Buttermilk was named for the Buttermilks, which is a region on the east side of the Sierras. So down outside of Bishop is some of the best climbing, mountain biking, and backcountry ski access Anywhere in the state. And it's for people who've been there, you know what I'm talking about. But it's just this absolutely gorgeous landscape with these huge mountains and huge boulders and wildflowers everywhere. And we thought it seemed like a really fun feminine name. So we launched in August of 2016, and within a month we had a cease and desist letter from Aspen Ski Corp, oh, man. <laughs> who told us that they had uh, the trademark on Buttermilk, which was entirely true. It was a hundred percent my fault. I had completely missed it when doing the trademarks trademark search, and was devastated. So it was a very expensive mistake to the tune of like five thousand dollars that we really didn't have at the time, um, but. As Aspen Ski Corp was nothing but what they were so wonderful about it. I was so devastated and they were so kind. Um, So we switched to our second choice name, which actually had always been wild rye. And wild rye is uh, a high mountain grass that grows in the upper montane region in the Sierra Nevadas and actually throughout all of the intermountain west. So it's a resilient grass that you'll only find growing above 5,000 feet. Uh, So, you know, we thought it really suited us well.
0: That's so, that's so interesting. It's funny. Like everyone has a different story when it comes to picking the name, but it's always, it's definitely, it's a difficult thing because it's something you're kind of stuck with forever. (laughs) Like obviously you can change it, but it's like, it's difficult to change. So having that vision is hard.
1: Yeah, and we were so lucky in that A, Aspen contacted us a month after launch. So we were only buttermilk. I mean, we've been Wild Rye longer, much longer now than we've been buttermilk. We did the name change in October. Um, so we were only buttermilk for two months. And then two, we were really committed to having a name that was rooted in the idea of place. Because Cassie and I also both have a really similar story. We both lived in the Bay Area. I grew up in the Bay Area. She grew up outside of Seattle on back. Ashland Island. And we were both living in San Francisco and just hating our lives and spending all weekends driving to Tahoe, spending all day Sunday being angry that we had to go home. And so we both really took a risk and moved to mountain towns. And I think that we really wanted a name that was rooted in the mountains because that was the place that we'd chosen to make our home. And it was a place that both of us had worked really hard to get to over the years. I think for both of us, it probably took about 10 years of planning to extract ourselves from our lives in the city and get, you know, for her to Sun Valley and for me to Tahoe.
0: Yeah, definitely. I totally understand that. Um so along this journey what would you say are some of your your biggest fears in regards to wild ride how do you manage them
1: Yeah I mean I'll be totally honest I think our biggest fear is cash flow we're 100% bootstrapped. So we haven't done a Kickstarter, we haven't raised traditional capital, we don't have a line of credit. So this means that at the end of the day, we're working with a limited budget for marketing initiatives and even adding new product lines. And I think we're always afraid that we won't be able to finance the kind of growth that we'd like to see for us to really be successful. And I think we're worried that someone with more capital will come in and snatch it away from us. Right now, we finance every new product line, every new season off of the sales from the previous season. So we don't bring in any new capital. We don't pay ourselves. We really just roll it back into the business month over month, year over year. And it's great that we're at a place after like not even a year that we can afford our own inventory already. But at the same time, it really limits how much growth we have. And I think that, Any founder, if they're being honest with you, will tell you that cash, I mean, just cold, hard cash is one of their biggest fears.
0: (laughs) It really is. It's a difficult thing. And it's, um, you know, there's so many different schools of thought, whether it comes to um, trying to raise capital. Uh, bootstrapping it and just sort of diving headfirst in and committing 10 grand or savings to it and putting your back against the wall and just figuring it out or going the, I'm going to keep a full-time job and slowly scale this up, but know that I have that income to fall back on. Um, so it's it's interesting, all the different ways.
1: Yeah. And we, I mean, I should say too, that I always knew that I wanted to start something on my own. So when I worked at Specialized, I actually lived at home in my late 20s to save up money to start Wild Rye, because I knew that it was something that I was really passionate about doing. And then when Cassie and I talked about it, it was so clear she was passionate about it too. And I'm really proud of the fact that we started 100% kind of off our own blood sweat and tears but at the same time i love that these days so many brands and especially women owned businesses can go to kickstarter to get funded because i think that's huge as someone who's experienced kind of the traditional lending models with banks i know how hard it is to get capital Um, and i think it's awesome that you can now go to kickstarter and do things like that
0: yeah, I, I, I it's it's changed so much over the even just the last couple of years. The ways yeah. that these businesses can grow and really validate themselves and not take on an incredible amount of risk. So, what would you say have been some of your the biggest mistakes that you've made uh, in regards to Wild Rye?
1: Oh man, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. Our mistakes run a huge gamut. So mistakes run everywhere from when we started, I didn't realize you could negotiate down minimums with fabric suppliers or manufacturers for a surcharge. So when someone would tell me, you need to order a thousand yards of that, I'd be like, okay, we need to order a thousand yards of that. Um, <laughs> or if someone was like, you need to manufacture 300 units, I'd be like, okay, that sounds fine. How hard could it be to move 300 units? Uh, so that's definitely one side of the mistake. And then the other side has been mistakes in product. So, for example, our very first year of manufacturing, our manufacturing schedule was way behind. Um, we were really struggling. Our manufacturer had had all of the goods to start production for months. I mean, since March, and by mid June, they still hadn't even started, and we were really devastated. So, We were actually supposed to launch in June of 2016. We ended up not launching until August. And when all of our goods arrived, we opened up the chamois shorts, which is like the padded short you wear under your baggies when you're mountain biking. And we opened them up and all of the leg bands have like... Sticky grippy elastic on the inside, and every single one of them had been sewn with the leg bands inside out. So, like, the grippy elastic, the silicone was facing outside. I was, I mean, this is what I mean when I talk about how much better you get at problem solving after the first year. (laughs) I think I sat down, all of our inventory, by the way, lives in my parents' garage. We do all of our fulfillment ourselves. So, we don't have like a A third-party distribution center. It's me glamorously pulling and packing all of your orders out there, Wild Rye universe. But I sat on the floor of my parents' garage and was just unbelievably devastated and didn't know what to do. And then about 15 minutes later, got up, dusted myself off, called a manufacturer in San Francisco and was like, if I ship you all of these, can you take these off and replace it with new elastic? And he was like, do you have other elastic on hand and i had thank god overordered elastic from our trim supplier and so i did have it and he went to work pulling off every single one of those leg bands and restitching on new elastic um and it was at the time i thought it was the worst thing ever but luckily i managed to weasel the cash out of our manufacturer to pay for it and you know it only took about 2 weeks so that that was that was actually not too bad but i think mistakes are inevitable when you're running a young company and when you're just starting i think You know, you're going to fuck up like you really are. It's going to be a mess. And you just it's really how you deal with that on the backside that matters, not the mistake itself.
0: You're right. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny. I, we've, we've been doing this podcast for a little over a year now, and I've been yeah, I product. love it. Thank I'm you. really
1: excited to be on it.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm glad I'm glad you're a fan. Um, and so, like, we've a lot of the brands we've interviewed are manufacture products, and all of them have a similar story to yeah. that, where they're just like, all right, we ordered X amount of units, they showed up and they were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was panic. And then it was like, all right, we need to figure out a way to somehow make this work where we're not eating, you know, five grand, 10 grand, 50 grand, whatever it is. And like, that's, that's a scary thing because especially when you're a young company and you don't really know the ins and the outs. And uh, it's, I, it's I I commend you. That's really (laughs) what I'm trying to say. It's, it can be so stressful. And um not being in the manufacturing industry, uh, I know how hard it is to start a business in general, adding the manufacturing yeah. aspect to it. It's like a whole nother realm.
1: Yeah, I have to say managing a product line and managing a product life cycle is something I didn't have experience with before Wild Dry. And I have to say, hands down, it's the hardest part of the business. Um just because there are so many moving pieces and so much can go wrong. And usually in large companies, they have whole teams devoted to this. People with tons of expertise who are well-educated and experienced. And, you know, then when you look at a lot of outdoor startups, it's people who are doing it for the first time. And you're, you know, you're really just hoping that you find the right partners and that, you know, they help you as you grow. So
0: Definitely. And the, the other thing that I really learned is... Um, People will yes you to death. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know how to do that. I can do this for you. Oh, yeah. And then you're like, yeah, okay, they got it. They can handle it. And then you get the results back and you're like, wow, this is a disaster. I should really have not, I should have had them send me a prototype or given me like a test sample because this is so not what I wanted
1: (laughs) Yeah, in my dream scenario, honestly, like in my dream scenario, we would be able to run our own quality control too on the manufacturing floor because a lot. What you don't realize is that a lot of these large brands who work in outdoor, yeah, they they either in some cases own the own the manufacturing company itself; it's fully vertically integrated, or they have an entire quality control team whose sole job is walking the floor and making sure things are made to spec. And for me, my dream scenario is that we have the ability to do our own quality control. Not that we now have some really great manufacturing partners, but even so, it's just helpful to have somebody there who can take a look at it, who can stop it, you know, if you can stop it when you're like 10 garments in and re- rework it or redirect it in the direction it's supposed to be going, it can save you a ton of money. It can save the manufacturer a ton of heartache and it can save the relationship too. So um, I think it's just a matter though, you know, it's, it's an economy of scale issue. The bigger you are, the more you can do, the smaller you are, the more you just work with what you have.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's so true. And obviously as um, technology progresses, a lot of that becomes easier, but it's still, it's still a challenge. Um, So what advice would you give to someone that wanted to start a business in the outdoor industry, manufacturing industry, or just really a business in general?
1: I mean, I'd have, I have two pieces of advice. One, go get some experience. I have to say both Cassie and I worked in really large, well-known outdoor industry companies before we jumped ship. So I was at Specialized. She was at Smith Optics. And I think the background, the connections, the experience that we have coming from those two companies is huge and has a ton of value to us on a day-to-day basis, just from how to run a business to how to be responsible to who to call when you have a question. So I think that experience is great. Great. If you can get it, go get it. Just do it for a few years. Know what you want to get out of it. Use it for what you need and do it. I mean, that would be one piece of my advice. The other piece is if you're not going to do that and you're really ready to start a company, don't agonize over decision making. It'll just slow you down. Uh, I think you always fear that you're going to make the wrong decision, but the truth is you're going to make the wrong decision and not deciding is worse. So I'm always a big fan of the idea of just committing to something, going and figuring it out on the backside. So you'll, you'll always need to adjust, but, you know, just go. Don't. What did in the specialized brand book specialized has something called simplify and go? And I guess it's probably the same thing just make the decision and move on, don't agonize over it too much because that'll just slow you down.
0: Yeah, it, it's really easy to waste time, and um, yeah, I feel like uh, a lot of most people, myself included, were raised to sort of um, assume that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And that's why it, like, really slows you down in making that decision because you're just like, I don't want to make the wrong decision. When in reality, there really is no wrong decision. You or know? there's
1: really no right decision. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you
0: know? Exactly. It's not a test. It's not like at the yeah. end of it some teacher's going to come in and be like, well, you got this wrong, you idiot. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> well and i find i personally find decision making very paralyzing i'm one of those people like i said i'm super type a so i'm very worried about doing something wrong and this is something that i have really had to get over running a business is you know what it's going to go wrong you're going to do your best and it will still go wrong and i think just knowing that fact has taken a big weight off my shoulders
0: yeah i'm the same way i'm also type a and it's like i take it upon it's like my um it's like a shot at me when something goes wrong. It's like I feel like it was like it's part of me almost. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I stre- I would stress out over it. I still do. Like um you know if something doesn't go right or if I feel like something that we did could have been better, I'm just like, well, okay. I know I could have done this better and this is how, but at the same time it's still affecting me. Yeah. <laughs> um okay, so Where do you see Wild Rye going in the next year, five years, ten years down the road?
1: Yeah, I think in the next year, our goal is to continue our growth rate, if not expand upon it. I think we will continue to open up additional wholesale accounts. Our approach to retail is pretty organic. We haven't gone to outdoor retailer. I mean, after all, we're not even a year old. Although this past summer, everybody and their mother was like, are you going to outdoor retailer? Are you exhibiting? Are you exhibiting? Are you exhibiting? I was like, no. I mean, we just, you know, that's like a $5,000 just cost to play and we aren't there yet so we do work with retailers but we work with retailers who reach out to us directly and who are willing to buy in line so basically what we have on hand is what we sell to retailers and so far we've had some great retail partnerships develop out of this so I think we'll continue to grow that um I think what I'd really like to see too, when it comes to year five, is I really want us to redefine what soft goods mean in outdoor. Um, I would really love us to disrupt the category to make a better product for women and to really elevate what we're talking about in terms of design. I think when you look at a lot of big brands' websites and you go to the soft goods page or the base layer page, it's just a lot of aquamarine, black, raspberry, and they're just shirts. It's, there's no interest, there's no kind of compelling story behind the, that product, and it really seems to me to be the one category in outdoor where no one's lavished much attention, and no one's really put that much effort into. So on, in five years, I'd really love us to be owning that category in outdoor. In 10, I don't know. I mean, I've always loved the idea of really beautifully curated brick-and-mortar retail. I think we're seeing a huge contraction in retail across outdoor, but just broadly speaking in the United States but I think there's still such a great role to be played by a good shop. And I think that great specialty shops will forever be part of Mountain Town communities and even urban communities as well. So I think in the long run, it'd be great to see you know, a women specific outdoor brick and mortar retail, whether that's something we own or it's something we partner in. I know Jen Gorecki and I have talked about running a winter pop-up shop in Tahoe for Coalition Snow and Wild Rye, where we would pay the landlord a certain percentage of sales to borrow the space over christmas that would otherwise be vacant because at the end of the day people want to touch and feel your product so as much as i'm a big fan of everlane and glossier and you know dtc brands i think when done well they're phenomenal um but i think at the end of the day we're not going to see retail go anywhere anytime soon
0: You're right. It's just going to change a lot. That's really, I think, the the only thing. Because like you said, it just won't people like the interaction, that sense of uh, community getting to know people and buying from people that they like and trust, really.
1: And I think it's just so bloated is what's happened is, you know, we're all hand wringing over a contraction in retail and outdoor. But the truth is, outdoor retail was so bloated over the past decade or even the past 20 years. And so what we're seeing is a much needed contraction, I think, not something that really is, you know, the end of the end of outdoor, because even for me, I mean, I don't do my own bike work, where am I going to get my bike fixed if we don't have a specialty you know, cycling shop in town or, you know, I don't do my own kind of base grinds in my house. I need someone to work on my skis or, you know, my... A great example, my dog ate my Hestra mittens last winter. It's like the third pair he's eaten. (laughs) But You know, we're in the middle of like one of the biggest powder cycles in the entire like history of Tahoe. You think I have time to order those mittens from backcountry? Hell no. I'm going to go pay full price at my specialty retail shop and walk out the door with a pair of mittens because sometimes your dog eats your mittens and you need that shop to kind of fulfill that need in the moment.
0: You're right, and uh, I'm gonna make a note that I'm insanely jealous of the ski season you guys had this past year. <laughs> <laughs> Don't
1: worry, I'm sure we're I'm sure we're right back to drought starting sixteen or starting seventeen, eighteen.
0: <laughs> I really hope not, because I personally have yet to ski Tahoe, and I'm hoping to make a trip out this year. Um, I was going to make a trip out last year, but for you know the crazy hectic life of running your own business, I had to begrudgingly cancel. <laughs> And I know I probably missed the snow, the snow year of a lifetime, but I'm hoping there'll be more
1: <laughs> I'm sure there will be. it just comes in it comes in waves out here um, it and really honestly, does. when the skiing's good in tahoe i I don't want to ski anywhere else. period.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know that I definitely know that. so what's the best part about wanting uh, running wild rye?
1: Oh man, I think the best part is making great gear for women, but um, I also think that it's being able to build something on your own. I love the challenges of running a startup, and I love how hard it can be to build something new and how rewarding it can be. Um, I I just think that I really find that wonderful. And to be honest, you know, I had a conversation with my parents the other day, and my mom, she's very funny. They've been very supportive of of me starting a a small company, which is great because I think that's so rarely the case, but they've been incredibly supportive. But the other day my mom was like, well, maybe you could find like a full-time professorship in Tahoe. And I thought, even if this doesn't work, I'm going to end up starting another company. I mean, I just can't imagine doing something else at this point. It's now so ingrained in the way I live my day-to-day life. I just, I love the challenge of running a business and making great gear for women.
0: It's funny. I feel the same way. My dad told me the same thing. He was just like, you you can never get a real
1: job because you'd hate it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and at the end of the day, too, I mean, I also think one of the reasons I started Wild Rye is that when you live in a mountain town, you realize that if you're going to create a sustainable life for yourself in a mountain town, you have to do something on your own. And whether that's starting a new deli, a new lunch shop, an ice cream place, a kayak rental shop, a, you know, sporting goods store, a restaurant, you have to create something for yourself in a mountain town. Because at the end of the day, these economies are fragile. And I think that you need to do as much as you can, A, to contribute to them by creating good companies that can potentially create sustainable jobs down the line, which is what I would love to do with Wild Rye. And secondly, if you're going to make money, you're going to need to figure something out on your own because there's only so many, and I say this as someone who has bussed many a table in Tahoe, um, there's only so much service work you can do before you kind of hit a wall. And so I've watched m- more and more friends kind of realize that they have to find something that's going to keep them in these towns that they love so much. And usually it's something that they do on their own and people are getting really creative about it. And it's it's amazing to watch.
0: It's exciting, definitely, and um, I'm really excited for what you guys are doing with with Wild Rye, and uh, I wanted to take a second to mention the fact that, um, and I know you've mentioned Coalition Snow a few times throughout the the Episode, but we're actually going to be partnering both of you guys and doing a giveaway on Ready Yeti. Um, so, if uh, you guys are interested in entering to win some product from both Coalition Snow and Wild Rye, and you're listening to this between September 12th and the 26th, definitely head over and uh, check it out and enter uh, to win a ton of gear um, from both these awesome brands. I really like, obviously, uh, you have such an incredible story and a, and a passion for what you guys are doing. Um, but in addition for anyone that wants to keep tabs on what you guys are doing with wild rye where's the best place for them to do that
1: uh they can follow wild rye at wwwwildwild ryecom or they can follow us on social media channels um yeah and is this can i ask you josh is this going to be your first women's specific giveaway for ready yeti
0: uh, I think it is, actually. We've had a few women-owned businesses, but not both of them at the same time. So, yeah, that's definitely a
1: <laughs>
0: great accomplishment for us. Um, so
1: Ladies doing it for themselves. Exactly,
0: exactly. So we're, we're stoked about it. And I, I love your passion. I really love what you guys are doing. And, um, oh, thanks. I'm excited to see what you guys do in the future. And, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your story.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure. I've been listening for the past year, so it's exciting to be invited to participate.
0: If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Ready, Day Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.